from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. From the Gospel writer Mark, the fourth chapter, verses 35 to 41, keeping with our summer series of being introduced to Mark's Jesus afresh, opening our hearts and our minds to know him again, to know him in a deeper way, and to hear his call. I'm going to add a scripture lesson I had not intended to until this morning. I was on my usual routine on Sunday morning outside of our prayer breakfast. I noticed a man in a brilliant white suit wearing dark sunglasses and holding a walking stick. I immediately recognized him as being someone who was visually impaired as I was coming by and saying good morning to everybody who was sitting along the pews outside of Fellowship Hall. He said to me and called out to me, hey, he could sense me walking by and heard my voice. He said, hey, do you work here? I said, yes, I, I do. He said, I wonder if you could do something for me. I said, sure, what is it? And I got down, so I was eye level with him, and he said, I would love for you to read me a psalm. I said, that would be lovely. What psalm would you like me to read you? And he said, what's today's date? I said, June 24th. He said, I think the 24th psalm would do. I said, what is your name? He said, my name is Jacob. I introduced myself and I pulled out my phone and I opened my Bible app and I read Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I thought if it was good enough... For the hallway outside of Fifield Hall, it was good enough for the church at worship all throughout the morning. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now on to Mark, the fourth chapter, verses 35 through 41. If you'd like to follow along on page 36 as I read aloud. Under the heading, Jesus stills a storm. On that day when evening had come, 
Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I have a hunch that this little story from the Gospel of Mark, the fourth chapter, I have a hunch that this story would have deeply resonated with Mark's original audience. When Mark sat down to write his gospel account to tell this story of Jesus, and as he included this story, I imagine those original hearers, those original readers would have had a connection to this narrative. Now, despite its placement in the New Testament canon as the second gospel, it takes second position in the New Testament. Mark really is actually the first gospel ever written, probably penned between the mid-60s and the mid-70s of the first century. Now, Mark's original audience during those days, during those years, would have been on the precipice or perhaps even in the throes of the Jewish and Roman war. And for those earliest of Christians, they would have been exposed to somewhat of an uptick in persecution, somewhat of an uptick in political marginalization, somewhat of an uptick in terms of their, their physical safety. There was a threat to them for what they believed coming from two sides, one from the religious zealots of the age of the time, out of the Jewish tradition, and also from the empire, from the Romans. In other words, to understand this original audience is to understand that they lived in perilous times. They lived in constant danger. And so this image of the disciples being overwhelmed and swamped by the waves as Jesus is sleeping in the stern, would have connected with Mark's audience in a deep, deep way. It would have resonated with their real-time experience. Do you not care that we are perishing? 
Perhaps that was a line they wondered aloud. Perhaps that was a line embedded in every prayer they were making at every moment they gathered for worship. Do you not care, O Lord, that we are perishing? Almost a generation and a half post Jesus's resurrection and Mark's audience might be wondering why Jesus is sleeping. Why has he not come to calm the wind and the storm? Like I said, I have a hunch that this story resonated with Mark's early audience, but I also have a hunch that it resonates with us as well. For how often have we heard from others, how often have we heard from our own lips, both inside the church and, and outside the church, how often have we heard that we are perishing? The church is perishing. The PCUSA, our denomination, is perishing. Justice is perishing. Our country is perishing. Liberty is perishing. Law and order are perishing. Family values are perishing. Religious freedom is perishing. Education is perishing. The, the, the middle class is perishing. Equality is perishing. Mental health care is perishing. Civil rights are perishing. Decency is perishing. Morality is perishing. Everything around us is perishing. Does it not seem that ours is an age constantly lived in a state of emergency? It is as if the cataclysmic, the catastrophic, and the apocalyptic are the norm. They're part of our everyday experience. And perhaps you, like me, wonder and pray in rhythm with the disciples, does anyone care that we are perishing? Now in our time and in this age, there are those that are caught in these storms who have come to believe that there is no one on the other end of that prayer line, that there isn't anyone beyond this world they become convinced that there isn't a God or some transcendent being that actually has the power, that actually has the authority to still a storm, to bring that kind of peace that the world longs for. I said a few weeks ago in a sermon when I was talking about the contours of a secular age, and, and one of those contours is this idea that nothing comes from the outside. All of our help, all of our knowledge, everything that we have at our fingertips vis-a-vis -vis our resources to face these storms, they're all here. Nothing is transcendent. Nothing comes from the outside. Jesus is, is not sleeping in the boat. Jesus is not actually in the boat. We're all by ourselves. We, the, the victims of a wind-blown and stormy age, must, in the philosopher Nietzsche's words, find our own will to power. He wrote this, 
The higher human being is distinguished from the lower human being by their fearlessness and their readiness to challenge misfortune. And for our purposes this morning, the stormy seas represent this misfortune. And Nietzsche calls us to, to abandon any God concept, abandon the idea that there is some power who can bring a stillness and a peace into the storms of this world and lean into your own will to power and take these challenges, take these seas head on. Reminds me of, a, of Chuck Nolan, the character played by Tom Hanks in that survival film, Castaway, that came out many uh, years ago. Chuck Nolan had to face the, the raging seas by himself. Nolan is a, a FedEx pilot who's in a jump seat, and the pilots who are piloting this plane, he's catching a ride to, to do his next job. And, and the plane goes down and it crashes and the, the two pilots die and there is Chuck Nolan played by Tom Hanks who finds himself on an uncharted island and he is challenged with this misfortune to survive. He's challenged to stay sane. He is challenged to not give up. And he will have to meet this challenge, so says the film, literally setting off for rescue on the raging and tumultuous sea all by himself. Unless you count that volleyball that he called Wilson. But it'll be all by himself. And for many of us in our age, in our time, we have become convinced that Nietzsche was right. Jesus is not in the boat. We've become convinced that Hanks's Chuck Noland is a mirror of our existence. We face the storm alone. Now, to be sure, there are those caught in these storms that have avoided atheism, they have avoided looking at the world through Nietzsche-colored lenses. They've moved away from that worldview, and they have maintained a belief in God. Ninety percent of, of this nation articulates some sort of belief in a higher power in God. But the God that is believed in by many is the God of the deists, this God is not engaged in calming the storm and, and sort of watches over in sunlit skies looking down on the storm clouds that shadow humanity. And for those of us who hold to those beliefs that, that, that we believe there's a God, but, but this God is not engaged in the world, the, the, the image of Jesus sleeping in the stern is an accessible one, isn't it? In the midst of this calamity, Jesus is sound asleep. And despite our faith in the existence, many of us will say, yes, I believe in the existence of the historical Jesus. I believe in his principles. I believe in, in what he taught. We are still no different than Chuck Noland. Because we find ourselves alone, because Jesus is asleep, Jesus is nowhere to be found. And, and many people who claim faith will, will claim the Bible and they'll say, hey, this is sort of like a, a survival guide to, to, to manage and maneuver the storms of our lives. And it's about principles. Our, our faith has become about principles or about doctrines or about, uh, about practices or about beliefs. And it's moved away from the person of our faith. 
We've settled for principles and we've said we're all by ourselves. There's no person to join us. There's no person to make this right. We've got the principles, but we're still on our own. Then there are those caught in these storms, atheists, deists, Christians, people from all walks of life, people possessing all sorts of worldviews and all sorts of religious convictions from every corner of the globe. There's people who are so afraid and they are so tormented by the storm that they have become convinced that the only way the storm is going to be resolved is if they destroy the one they believe who is the cause of the storm in the first place. Is this not the pattern evidenced by humanity since the dawn of civilization? Whose fault is it? And once we find out, let's take them out. Let's destroy them. You know, as I was thinking through this point, I was thinking about the story of Jonah. Remember a few years ago, we did a sermon series. Uh, Joel Lamont and I did a, did a tandem sermon series uh, on the story of Jonah. And you remember how that story begins, right? Jonah's called by God to go to Nineveh to bear witness to God's grace and mercy, even for the Ninevites. Jonah says, no way. They don't deserve your grace and mercy. So he boards a ship and he heads in the opposite direction. And you remember what happens next. God causes a great storm to come upon that vessel that Jonah is on. And the sailors who are managing that vessel realize that the storm has come and they ask a question, whose fault is it? Remember the story? Who is the cause of this great calamity that we are experiencing? And they draw lots and it falls on Jonah. And what do they do to Jonah? They throw him overboard to destroy him so that the seas would come to rest. And isn't this the epitome of what we do as human beings? What we've become so good at across these many, many years? You know, it's the liberal Christian's fault. Let's throw them overboard. It's the conservative Christian's fault. Let's throw them overboard. It's the immigrant's fault, so let's throw them overboard. It's the, it's the minority's fault, so let's throw them overboard. It's white people's fault, so let's throw them overboard. It's the it's Democratic Party's fault. It's the Republican Party's fault. Let's throw them all overboard. Now, I want to be very clear on a point here. This is no way to suggest that the impact of the storm, that the storms we experience that the, their impact has not been enhanced, enhanced by the immorality or injustice or indifference of people. Let's name that for what it is and let that just sit with us that there is culpability, that the human being does sin against God and sins against one another and creates storms for each other. There is culpability. But what I'm suggesting here is what we actually do when a storm comes upon us. What is the Christian way? Because we know what the world's way is. We know the world wants to throw people overboard. But we have to ask the question, is that the way of God? And so in our age, full of storms, in this age marked by a constant state of emergency, some people have abandoned God, and they're convinced that they are on the sea alone. Some people who claim faith, who believe that God exists, 
but think that God is asleep, that God is not intervening, that God is not present, that we don't have the person of Jesus with us. All we have are his, his principles, and we still find ourselves alone on the sea. And then there are those people of all faiths, all walks of life, all political persuasions, all racial ethnic diversities who seek to destroy the culprits of calamity, who at every turn are trying to find the next person to throw overboard. But in this story, in Mark chapter 4, the Jesus we meet offers what Paul would say is a more excellent way. And the first thing we have to note is that Jesus is in the boat, and while he was sleeping, he does not remain asleep, does he? No, he wakes up. And it's not just that his principles are present. He is fully present with the disciples in the midst of the storm. What is more, Jesus knows and he will know what it's like to be persecuted. He knows and will know what it's like to be perishing. In fact, in Mark 3, the chapter right before this one, Uh, Mark tells us that as Jesus is sort of breaking these religious and cultural norms around the Sabbath about who he's including, that the religious leaders of the day, they begin to plot a way to destroy him. They begin to plot a way to throw him overboard. And the word that's used in Mark 3 to describe their desire to quote-unquote destroy him is the same word the disciples use to describe what the sea is trying to do to them. The same exact word. Jesus knows what it's like to perish. He knows what it's like to be in the midst of the storm. And of course, Jesus will face the ultimate storm, the rejection, the betrayal, the torture, the crucifixion he will endure at the hands of these religious leaders under the authority of the Roman Empire. And it will be a storm, friends, of epic proportion. Make no mistake, Jesus is not unfamiliar. He knows it, not just in principle, but in his own person. Not in principle, but in his person. What it means to be thrown overboard. Even still in the midst of the storm, Jesus is ready to act. Jesus is ready to move. And just as God was ready to move to raise Jesus from the dead, thus saying to the world that God is God and death is not, And that life and peace will be the final word in my story. Jesus mirroring this resurrection brings a stillness, brings a calmness, brings a peace in the midst of those boats. Thus declaring to each one of us that he's trustworthy. Not just in his principles, but in his person. That in, in, in some mysterious way, by the power of his Holy Spirit, it's not just that his principles are with us, but his person is with us. And he speaks into the storms of our lives. And he's waiting for us to call out and say, Lord, we're perishing. And he's ready to bring a peace. And he's ready to bring a a stillness into your life and into my life. And he's ready for us to meet the shoreline. He's ready for us to get out of the boat, which is an essential element of this story and an essential part of his mission. Let's be very clear here that Jesus's mission is not to throw people overboard. Can can I get an amen on that? 
Jesus' mission is not to throw people overboard. If any Christian tells you otherwise, they're reading the wrong book. Jesus' mission is not to throw people overboard. Did Jesus seek to do to undo rather injustice? Yes. Did Jesus seek to destroy indifference and apathy? Yes. Did Jesus seek to destroy systems that marginalized and excluded certain people? Absolutely yes, but Jesus never tried to destroy a person. He never tried to destroy a person. He did not come with a sword, but with a servant's towel, a life lived in love. I want to close with this image. Early on uh, in this text, Mark tells us that Jesus uh, and the disciples get into the boat, quote, to cross to the other side. Now, this turn of phrase is not just about geography. It's not just about tracing the GPS here, about moving from one side of the sea to the other. This is actually a theological statement because it's part of who Jesus is. It's part of his mission because what they were actually doing is they were crossing from the Jewish side of the sea to the Gentile side of the sea. That's what they were actually doing. And after Jesus calms the storm, and after he calms the sea, notice that they don't stay on the boat. They go to shore, and they're on the Gentile side. And Jesus, the first thing he does, it starts in chapter 5, the first thing that he does is he heals a Gentile who is his racial, political other. He heals him of demon possession. Then they all get back in the boat and they go back to the Jewish side of the sea where Jesus is encountered by a woman who has an illness that has kept her on the fringes of the community, who has kept her as an outcast in the life of God and in the life of, of faith. And she touches the hem of his garment. Do you know this story? And immediately power flows into her. And she is healed. She is stilled. She receives peace. And she receives an invitation to enter back in as a full participant in the life of God and in the life of the community. And then Jesus goes on to one of the leaders in the synagogue, goes to their house where their daughter appears to be dead. Now, now, mind you here, we just heard in chapter 3 that the religious leaders of the day are trying to destroy Jesus. So he goes into perhaps an enemy's home and he heals his daughter. Jesus' mission is not just to bring peace and stillness in the storms of your life, but also to invite us to the shoreline to bring peace to the Gentiles, the racial, political, other, to bring peace to the outcast, and to even where it is appropriate to bring peace to our enemies, to the one who seeks to throw us overboard. Jesus is ready to calm the storms and the seas of your life, and so ask him to do such a thing. Ask him not just via his principles, but via his very person to be in that boat with you, 
and to calm the storms. But don't stop there. Because church, you got to get out of the boat. Jesus didn't calm the storm so you could stay at sea. Jesus calmed the storm so you could go to the shoreline, move toward the Gentile, move toward the outcast, move toward your enemy, bearing witness to peace. See, Jesus, he wants us to be storm chasers and peacemakers. So where are the storms on the shoreline? And where is the peace you and I have been called to bring? May we bring it for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the world. Amen.